0: Hello, and welcome to the Theological Family Ministry Podcast, a podcast for parents as well as children and youth ministry leaders. We are dedicated to showing how theological study and biblical application relate to the discipleship of children and youth. As always, we're hosted by Pastor Ben Palaz, the pastor of Family and Children's Discipleship at Curtis Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia, and Tony Trussoni, the family and student pastor at Faith Family Church in Finksburg, Maryland.
1: All right, Tony. It's good to be back with you, man. It's been a busy summer. I guess the summer's got a, a little time left, but how are you doing?
2: I've been busy, like you said. So we just uh, had our kids camp at the church out at a place called Skycroft about a week ago. Uh, so we actually just got back from that on Friday. So that was a lot of fun and great opportunity to uh, really bond with our children's ministry and get some real gospel
1: center teaching.
2: And, uh, so how, how have you been? What have you been up to lately, Ben?
1: Uh done a little bit of traveling. Went to Pennsylvania. Uh, went actually up to northeast Georgia this past weekend, which uh, we've got a special guest today, and we'll we'll talk with him in just a minute. But right around his his neck of the woods, so it it has been busy. So school is is approaching fast, and uh, a lot of changes with that. Uh, so how are the Orioles doing? I haven't really been keeping too close track. Are they in the chasing the Yankees or anything? Or? Oh, they've been terrible, but they actually did get a record recently. Did you read about the record? Uh, like record losses?
2: Or? Oh, no. They, uh, they're in the history books now because they, for the first time since, I think, 1952, uh, they had a, uh, not a position player record a save. So, uh, and he uh, <laughs> he was a backup outfielder, and he never threw a fastball faster than 54 miles per hour, uh, which is incredible because, I mean, I'm terrible at baseball, and I'm pretty sure I could do that.
1: <laughs> your your Orioles just continue to have records of you know just lots of notoriety. Uh, yeah, the Braves are actually doing pretty well, so we'll see when it makes it to the postseason comes. But um,
2: maybe if you guys well, need somebody to throw really slow pitches and get uh, some saves for you, you can make a trade with the Orioles.
1: Speaking of the Braves, they they have a player who signed a contract extension this year, and uh, from you know, what I saw, what, what analysts thought he could, um, he could have made more money had he waited. Um, and some analyst out there, one of the talking heads said the reason that he signed the contract was because he was too dumb to know, to know the difference between two numbers. I don't know. It was like 18 and 80. And, uh, anyways, some people took issue with that. Cause he said, this guy knows like five languages and you're, you're insulting his intelligence. And it's that leads us into to the topic for today, which is Bible translations in young people. And this is an episode I've been looking forward to for a while now. And so we have brought in Dr. Kevin Burris. He's the Associate Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Tacoa Falls College, uh, which is Tony and I, that's our alma mater. Uh, but so how are you,
3: Kevin? Doing well, doing well. Glad to be here with you today.
1: Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time for us. Um, and he teaches uh, Old Testament and biblical languages at Tacoa Falls. He's a member of the Society of Biblical Literature, uh, Evangelical Theological Society, stuff like that. He's been teaching there for a dozen years now, and I did not actually have him as a professor. Tony, you did, didn't you? I
2: actually did not, so I never had well, one didn't? of his classes okay. either. So uh, my wife I heard did. he was
3: tough. That's what the word on the street is. But I try to keep that reputation so that it keeps the class size down just a little bit. So. <laughs> That's funny. Less
1: papers to grade. And we actually, the three of us went to the same church for a while uh, when we were in Tacoa. So, we again, we are appreciative of you giving us uh, your time. Uh, For this is important. This is just a fascinating thing to me. I've been interested in Bible translation for a long time. So, just kind of moving into the conversation, is Bible translation or any kind of language translation, is it precise and exact like math? Because he also went to Georgia Tech, so probably likes math. Um, Or is translation more like an art form? I would—
3: Say uh, a little bit of both on this. Um, I, one of the reasons I really like language is because there is a formula to the language, but there's also an art to speaking and listening and reading. Uh, so, when you're trying to go from one language to another, of course, there's going to be a, a lot of um, nuance that has to be underst- understood. You have to understand the language that you're translating from really well, plus the culture and the language that, you, that you're translating into. Uh, pretty well. Plus that culture also, and um, throughout the history of language translation, especially even in biblical translation, you can you can see this um, this tension between just translating mathematically and mechanically, and translating trying to get sense and trying to get the overall uh, perspective and and the the meaning behind it, going from one culture or one language uh, to another. So it's a little bit of both, I think. Okay, Thank
2: that's you. helpful. So, and I've got the next question, and uh, it does feel a little bit weird to me on the podcast asking you these big theological questions, because I remember doing that in my security uh, uniform uh, when I was doing rounds and bothering you in the middle of a work day.
3: Maybe during the middle of a work night. That's pretty late sometimes.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. I'm sure you remember that, so... Uh, and I'm sure you stayed late, partly because of my interrupting your day. So, anyway, <laughs> uh, hopefully this doesn't interrupt your day too much. But what are some uh, complicating factors when translating from one language to another? Or are pretty much all languages identical in every way, shape, and form?
3: Well, I think um, word usage and uh, cultural differences are the, the big barriers. You, you have this even within the same culture and different generations. We can think of words in English. I mean, any of us know um, that that a word today may mean something different to the current generation tomorrow. So that's, that's a constant battle with with younger people, especially in translation, because something like a word like sick or a word like salt or salty means something totally different, uh, maybe to them, maybe a word that makes them giggle or, or something instead of a, a word that has to do with um, Jesus telling us to be salt and light. So uh Even within the same culture, you have these um, differences. But within different languages, you just have multiple words for the same concept. Hebrew and Greek words uh, for love, there there are multiple words for love in both languages. And there kind of are in English, but we just use love. And the Greek and Hebrew don't even mean the same thing. And so those are are difficult concepts. Biblical times also, it's just so far away. It's in a different type of culture very patriarchal and and uh, middle eastern ancient near eastern and so words like i can think of swear or the word covenant these all mean different things and and then you add to that the fact that most modern readers or in in any culture but especially in ours don't understand things like what a city gate would represent or or a betrothal or if they think of a well they think of a uh, Maybe a well with a cover over it, and you're rolling up a bucket instead of a big hole in the ground, like the the ancient Near Eastern people would have. So, so yeah, it's a it, crossing from one culture to another, and one time period to another makes makes translation pretty difficult sometimes.
1: Those really good detail and, and factors that I think that that do. F- come into the mix. Um, and some people can go, oh, it's just, you know, so far removed and the culture and everything else, the thought world. Uh, I mean, what can we really understand? And we're not trying to uh, go that route. I think sometimes
3: we we forget that in uh, from culture to culture, things are uh, different as you move from place to place. And so one of the most striking examples that I can think of when I was talking to a, a, one of the Bible translators that we work with is that they they had. Uh, they really didn't know what a lamb was, and so the concept of a la- the Lamb of God is something that is so foreign to to them that that they were wondering how to translate this and how to make the people understand Lamb of God. They also couldn't understand the negative connotations of working with with pigs with swine, and so mm-hmm. when when we talk about agriculture and, and just the basics of everyday life, uh we are so far removed from that in, in America. We don't work with animals on a daily basis, or at least 99% of us don't. Um, but when you're going into a, a different culture, the, the agriculture may be totally flipped or different. And and we may not even recognize some of the animals, some of the crops, those those type of things. So this, this makes the, the basics of understanding some of those Old Testament stories especially uh, pretty difficult. Um, so I don't know. As where that fits in or whatever um, but I was thinking with cultural barriers um, the attitudes towards family structures the attitude towards women, the attitude towards um, the the different places that each uh, person has in society uh, you know the upper class and the lower class and the middle class and we, we do have that sum in, in America in some ways but it's almost totally based on money and not on who, where you were born, you know what type of family you're born into. Those type of things, and so those are cultural things that complicate the, the issue even more.
1: So those are, again yeah, those are really helpful things. I, I've heard D. A. Carson tell a story about giving some sort of evangelistic address. I don't know, in a university or something. And there was a student from Japan, and she uh, she was having difficulty understanding sin uh, because whatever description was used in her mind and in Japanese culture, it was hard to separate that idea from criminal and law, like a actual, you know, criminal against the state. And so just having to reframe that um, in a way that would make sense. And so, I mean, you know, when we're talking about teaching the Bible to uh, whether it's children or youth and, you know, they're concrete thinkers or developing out of that, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that goes into it. And so as we're trying to choose a Bible translation. That's why we wanted to have this discussion today. Um, so you've mentioned gender a couple of times. So what should we think about the controversy surrounding gender and language? Like, you know, um, give you a couple examples. Like the NIV, the new NIV 11, um, instead of using he, often if it's just kind of a generic masculine, it will use the one or, or they. Um, some translations will use brother strictly because the word is just, you know, strictly speaking, brothers, but it it intends to include brothers and sisters, um, or the sons of Israel. Some translations will change it to children of Israel. Uh, What are some guidelines that you think would be helpful for people as they they look at that whole issue?
3: Well, personally, I do like to be cautious when it comes to the gender translation and translate as, as closely as possible. So I like translations that stick more with whatever gender is mentioned in Scripture, but we do have to realize that sometimes the masculine is just used uh like it used to be in our culture for both masculine and feminine and that's not necessarily the, the case anymore when it comes to some of these translations so there is some real value in gender neutral translation at some points um we're not, not living in a patriarchal society most of the readers and most of the children hopefully they're being taught but really most <coughs> of the women aren't going to understand an issue like sonship or in the importance of being a son for inheritance or for the family name or or those things. And so uh, there is some value for certain types of things, uh, like maybe I'm thinking more for a woman devotional reading whenever it talks about being the children of God versus the sons of God in terms of personal connection may not be necessary for everyone, but but there is some value there, and some translations are pretty responsible with this. Um, some versions of the, uh, some variations of the NIV, as you know, go a lot more extreme in terms of um, the gender translation. So I, I just look at non-negotiables when it comes to translations, and uh, when it comes... Uh, to the things that always cross the line, it's almost always whenever there's some sort of gender neutral translation when it comes to the Godhead. Uh, God is not a male or female, obviously, but He's chosen to con- consistently reveal Himself with masculine images and masculine pronouns. And so we need to refer to God as Father, not Mother or Parent. And Jesus definitely needs to be the Son, not a daughter, or even just a child. And so when it comes to even prophecies about those things, and, and Jesus is self-referent as the Son of Man, uh, as his addressing God the Father as Heavenly Father, not Heavenly Parent or something like that, um, we need to make sure we draw a line there and say, well, God's chosen to reveal himself here. There's nothing gender-neutral about that at all. But some of these other things, uh, I prefer uh, sons of God because it, it definitely goes into the culture. And and I can explain maybe to my children that, that being a son in that culture is a very important thing. It denotes inheritance. It wasn't that they didn't love their daughters uh, as much. It was that uh, the daughter would go into another family. And so we're sons of God. We will always stay in the family of God. We will have a place. We will have a... A piece of land, we will have an inheritance with God, uh, so to speak. And so, so those those are valuable concepts. Is they're not necessary, like the being consistent when it comes to the the Godhead. But but they're they're certainly valuable lessons to teach our children, whether our translation goes with children of God or sons of God. On those,
2: yeah, that's very helpful, especially in a and it's a discussion. I think more and more people are having. Uh, as some translations, just really differ on that. Uh, But, you know, with translations, even beyond this kind of he-she controversy, um, he versus uh, gender-neutral controversy, uh, briefly explain some different translation philosophies that kind of go even beyond this type of thing, whether it be formal equivalency, uh, that uh, that whether it be a dyna- more of a dynamic approach, or even at, uh, whatever translation philosophy beyond that you can think of, and give a few examples among popular translations if you could.
3: When it comes to uh, the different translations, I, I know there are a lot of different terms for translation theories, and we go over these in our hermeneutics classes at college and stuff, but really I I find it best just to stick to three different categories for translations. One is a word-for-word, more of a formal equivalency. One is a thought-for-thought, that would be a dynamic, and the other would be a a paraphrase. And um, this seems to be something that at least sticks in the minds of of adults and, and children as well when it comes to understanding where your translation that you like to read falls and maybe how you could choose a different translation if, it, if, if you need it for what your your aim is. What you really want to think about when you think about which translation to use is what's your purpose in using it and uh, who's your audience going to be if there's an audience. If it's personal study and you want to do a word study, then you, you're going to want to go more word for word. Um, if you're just going to go out in the woods and read your bible and you, you you may go more thought for thought or maybe even to paraphrase there may be some value in in that but um but if you're you know teaching someone what is your audience going to understand and so um i like to just there are so many charts now online and and you can just google english bible translation comparison and there are several charts that come up and, and my favorite one or the clearest one and most accurate that I, I like is by uh, Brent McDonald. It's an old one. It actually goes back to the time whenever I first came to um, uh, Tacoma Falls. But on that, on one side it has the most word for word translation and that's just an interlinear, which is just, you know, no thought is given to anything except getting the right word. Nothing about word order, anything like that. And, and you know, all the way over on the other side, there are paraphrases that just, they they give loosely the thought of, of Scripture. And, and on, he has on the very right side of that, under the most loose paraphrase, he has the message. And so somewhere in between there, you'll find every uh, Bible version that you might use, even different variations. There are three or four different types of NIVs uh, in there from different years or uh, different editions. Uh, they're English and American versions, and so um, so I, I like to look at that, and if I'm doing study uh, for teaching, or if I'm wanting to dive deep into something, I want something that's in the word-for-word. Word. Sometimes when I'm teaching uh, the fifth and sixth graders at church, um, I may be reading from uh, something that's in the thought-for-thought. Thought. So in the word-for-word, you have versions like the New American Standard Version. That's the that New American Standard Bible is definitely the the most word for word, most formal translation that we have in in the English world. Um, another one that's used in a lot of older churches is the King James, and that's a good translation for the time. It's word for word, and and then you have a translation which is the one I use, which is the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, so that, that's word for word, and then in thought for thought, thought the most um, the most uh, prevalent one is, is the NIV. Uh, so those are the different models, and um, when it comes to what you use, then it m- usually has to do with what you grew up with. Um, but you need to think about what, what's the purpose and then, and then what your audience is for, for who you're giving these to. I can think of several situations where the King James is still very useful in the area that I live but it's not very useful in most areas outside the Bible Belt and some of these small country uh, churches. And so I I find the ESV is understandable plus more word for word. So I, I choose that one.
2: Yeah, that's great. So I do want to add onto that. Uh, so many of our listeners, uh, a great deal of them come from Southern Baptist contexts, not all by any stretch. In fact, some are international, and we thank you guys for all for listening. Uh, but one translation I'm sure some are curious about is, where does the uh, Christian Standard Bible, or as it was previously called, Holman Christian Standard Bible, kind of fall into that mix?
3: Yeah, it's right on the line. It's not as word-for-word uh, word as, um, as the um, ESG and that's not as word-for-word word as the King James Version, but it's, it's kind of right in there in the middle of the word-for-word word and the thought-for-thought. Thought. It's a good translation, and, and ultimately, if you are using a thought-for-thought, thought, you want to look at what the philosophy behind it is and, and what the, who the board behind it is. You want, you want a group of men and women who really understand Greek and Hebrew, but also understand the culture. And so when you look at the board for the Holman Christian Standard Bible— um, the, the the version the translation is very good and you may want to you know think there may be a, a bias towards a Southern Baptist mentality somehow all these translations are going to have the biases of their their translators and everything but it's a good translation and it has people that really have, I mean they've they've lived here they know the culture they understand Greek and they understand Hebrew and they they've put the taken the, the scripture, as it was originally and they've, they've really done a good job of, of putting it into modern language I, th- I think it's more on the thought for thought it's just crosses that line barely but it's it's a good translation
1: and it's helpful just being specific so uh, the, the information you gave us there it was very helpful on just how translation philosophies work <laughs> and their approach to to bringing something that means something in one language and and trying to as much as possible bring all that meaning into another language. Um, So is there a perfect translation philosophy or a perfect Bible translation? Because uh, there are some people, you know, the mentality is, well, word for word, uh, because you're getting all the words over, and so therefore you must be faithfully conveying all the meaning. There's others that would attack that approach. And so is there a perfect way to, to do all this and put it all together in a bound copy of the Bible?
3: Well, I would say no. I think it's a, a pretty obvious answer on that. Um, there are some that are better for certain purposes, though, and I, I think that we have to realize that just going into which translation they were going to use, the the, the idea of deep study in the in the word, you really have to go more of that formal word for word translation and and the the maybe on when it comes to if you're just not used to that uh, whatever you're comfortable with in terms of the major translations and whatever you uh have memorized your scripture in um that's that's where you go in terms of the your your personal devotional and spending time in the word and then and then even you know you've got to make decisions based on what you're going to have your children memorize and what you're going to read with your children and, and all those things and so uh, if your audience is your children, it may be a different subject than if your audience is a Bible study that you're having in your home. Uh, so so I'd say there's not a perfect uh, method there, and it's it's good that we have different possibilities when it comes to Bible translations. Even back uh, in, in the time of the early centuries of, of the New Testament, there were differences in which Bible people had to read in terms of the Greek Old Testament. There, there are three guys: Aquila, Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodotion. And and it was amazing that Aquila was like the NASB, and he translated very literally. And Symmachus said, "No, no, no," he he did not like that, and he went uh, very thought for thought. And then you have Theodotion, who's in the middle, trying to combine the two of those. And people always argued over this. And and this is where we get the the Septuagint came from. It's just a you know, a, an attempt to to make the best of all those worlds, and and all of them fall short a little bit. Just like all of our our human efforts are going to fall short a little bit. But God is faithful to through His Spirit to get get the main idea, the main message, and 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 the words, the the true words of of God through to to our hearts uh, in these translations, if the people are faithful in translating.
1: That's a helpful point, because we're, we're not Muslims. We don't believe that the Bible only is in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, that it can be translated and be helpful to its people. So, yeah.
2: Now, we can safely say that the Lord, by and large, intended Scripture to be understood by its original audience. The words of Scripture are also the very words coming out of the mouth of God. Uh, how do these factors then influence our translation choices?
3: I think the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture is, is really important. We, we know what Scripture is saying, and, and we want to be as faithful as we can to that. And, and so this is why we have the, the variations in dynamic versus uh, formal translations, word for word versus thought for thought. Um, we can go too far you know, in, in that, I think, sometimes in terms of how far we go in, in the, the paraphrase direction. But um, it just when it comes to interpreting uh, uh, scripture, uh, you have to keep in mind that it is the word of God. You want to be faithful to it, but it it is something that needs to be understood. And so, it's just it's a lot of hard work to understand the original language, the original culture, and the target language and the target culture. A lot of modern wars when it comes to maybe some, those that are more strict in their translation and, and some of the things that are happening in places like Wycliffe and stuff um, come because some people value the strictness and the word for word more and, and some people um, value the, the target language more and think that one's more necessary than the other, but really, really both are necessary and there has to be a lot of prayer and, and humility in this in terms of how you're going to be consistent, how you're going to represent the word of God in a way that that uh, can be understood by the audience.
1: It's good. So, uh, some favor use this transitioning kind of in actual use in churches and homes. Some people favor using a particular translation at home or in age graded settings uh, because that's the translation that's used in public worship in their church, um, or you know, and they want that language to be familiar. We actually had a guest on here. Uh, Jason Halopoulos, uh, they use the ESV in their church, and so that's what they use in his home. Um, others, though, favor using more readable translation at home or in, in an age-graded setting um, if, say, they, they use something more like the ESV or the New American Standard uh, in the, the public worship service. but uh, And some just maybe haven't given much consideration to it. Uh, what would your thoughts be to that?
3: Well, I've, again, I, I think um, you're going to have to decide what are you reading? If you're talking about the parents and this and what they decide to use, what are they reading? First of all, the parents have to be reading the Bible, and they have to be reading it in a, you know, a, a way to, to grow in their relationship with God, and then they have to decide, okay, well, that's probably, for me, the translation that I'm going to use when talking to my kids, because I'm trying to read through the Bible with my son who's a little bit older, and and read more slowly too, and let her read some. With my daughter, who's a little bit younger, and I've used the ESV for 20 something years now since it first came out, really, and and I like it, and and I've still got some remnants of King James from my in terms of memory and stuff, but but really, that's that's what I read. That's what I if I'm listening to the Bible, I listen to the ESV. If I'm reading I, in English, I, I read uh, the ESV, and so. Uh, that's what I'm going to read out loud in our family devotions, and that's what I'm going to read when I read with them, and that's what I'm going to ask them to memorize when our family memorizes verses. So I, I'm, I guess, the main consideration for me in terms of of family usage is what I'm going to actually be reading myself. You know, what are me and my wife using? Because that's that's what we're going to know, what we're going to be communicating to them. I think that we should. Consider our church for sure when it comes to that, and if uh, our preacher is always preaching out of the King James version, and and the Hugh Bible is the King James, then we probably need to read some of that in the home at times, though, and, and talk about that, and, and especially ask, hey, you know, this this was a little bit different than what we normally read at home. Uh, is you know, do we have any questions about this and, and what these mean? <laughs> so. You, you've got to talk through it if it's a different translation that's used in your home is, that, you use in, that is used in the church or maybe in a private school setting or, or whatever. But I, I think the first consideration is what do, you, what do you, the parents
1: use? Okay. That's, uh, I, I didn't think you'd necessarily go in that direction, but I think that is a helpful way to look at it.
2: Yeah, really good. So And I think it really affirms a lot of what we're trying to do, which is instill the parents are <laughs> the primary disciples. So even you know, in that relation to the church, So that's really helpful. So.
1: so, Kevin, I'm interested. What's your take on the King James only debate or the, the kind of mentality that one particular translation is really the only way to go? And what might you do in a situation of ministry where uh, someone holds to that and is something that you need to be aware of and sensitive to?
3: Well, this still happens in college. We'll, we'll be reading and someone will read from the King James and, you know, 70% of the people there now have never heard reading from the King James. And they, <laughs> it's a shame. Just They just, you know, freak out. Uh, uh, you know, it's a person reading. <laughs> so it awkwardness. I think you have to be sensitive to what the, the situation is, but but I, I do encourage multiple translations in terms of, you know, looking at something. If you're only reading English and the scripture is written in Originally Hebrew and Greek, then I, I encourage the use of a few translations, and, and I would do that. I don't, I don't want someone just reading the ESV. Um, Joshua, uh, my son, has a has a um, Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible, and he uses it for some of his um, study. That's his study Bible versus the Bible that we use to read from and stuff, which is the ESV. And he can notice little differences there, and he can say, "Hey, what, what's why is this different?" and and we can talk about that. Um, so it actually promotes Bible study to, to use a couple of different ones.
2: Yeah, that's good. And it's a shame because King James is such a beautiful work of art.
3: Yeah. It's 400 years old, though.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the language has shifted, so. But I, I heard a story of a professor at Southern who, um, he, when his son was much younger, he gave him, I think, uh, the message or some uh, periphrastic translation or You know, work, and uh, after a while, he was putting the son to bed, and his son said, "Dad, can I just have my NIV back?" Um, You know, and he had just come to to appreciate the language of it. He was familiar with the wording, and just found the other one a little bit too much different, I guess. And so,
3: yeah, um, I I think the kids. Obviously, you all know this uh, from your emphasis, and this is your work. But it seems like the kids rise up to the. The level that they're asked to, for the most part. If, if uh, it comes to, I, I don't know that I would ever go into to a modern, uh, you know, elementary school class at, at church or something and, and use a use a King James version and in most places around here because it, it would there's a language barrier issue there. But but if every parent in the church used it, then then their kids would understand it. I mean, I did when I was young. I didn't understand everything. I thought I did, but. Um, <laughs>
1: Plus, the Gideons, I mean, for a long time, would only give out the King James. And I understand there's copyright issues and that kind of thing. But um, in recent years, they have moved to offer some more translations. So I think when they're handing them out to kids and, and teenagers and stuff, I think that's been a good move. Yeah. Should we use
2: whatever translation suits our purpose for a given occasion, or should we tend towards sticking with one translation, especially with young people?
3: Well, like I say, I, would, I think I would uh, concentrate on one and um, you do your teaching, your devotions, uh, hopefully reading together. Again, I know I'm emphasizing that, but you've got to read the Word with the kids, and whatever translation it is, God will work through that. He works through His Word. If you you do that, then I think that's the main issue. Stick with with one translation that, that you both can understand and grow with. Then, however, I think that, like I said, giving a uh, a variety showing, hey, you know, it, it's gonna, it's gonna rock their world if they think there's just one translation that's okay, and and there's <laughs> someone who, who thinks, no, this other translation's all there is and stuff, but uh, exposing them to some variety in translation and saying, hey, look, you know, the, the Bible was written in a different language at a different time, but man, God is so good that He's He's allowed His His Word to be translated into. Most of the languages of the world, and in English, in English, we have so many um, varieties that we can look at it. And even if you don't understand Greek or Hebrew, which you know you could encourage them to learn Greek and Hebrew, that'd be the best thing. But uh, if you um, right. if you uh, don't understand Greek and Hebrew, you can you can look and say, hey, these translations have differences here. Let's let's dig into this and see why are there differences, and uh, that'll lead to, to deeper Bible study. So I would encourage you know you just you know, if you're just doing one language, you want to dive into a couple of different translations uh, at some point. Uh, so it's a good Bible study method, I
1: think. That's uh, good advice. Uh, just making use of the riches that we have in our language. and we think of people groups that have one Bible translation or an incomplete Bible translation, and that's it. And they have to. They're very thankful for it. And you know, we can have the the luxury of discussing which one is the best. Um, so, and if you're interested in studying uh, the biblical languages, check out tfc.edu. Do, do you do online classes uh, or just the residential?
3: I hope we're moving towards it. We've done some online Greek, but uh, it's, not a, it's not a heavy demand uh, class, for sure, so we, we haven't um, gotten into regularly offering that. We, we've done a few test runs, and people have uh, had a hard time online. <laughs> so, but there are... Um, I will, uh, uh, you can choose to plug this or not, but of course, uh, Daily Dose of Greek and Daily Dose of Hebrew, You can, You can. can. that's even better really than taking an online class in some ways. Is you can learn that yourself at your own pace uh, if you're really interested in it. And those are excellent free resources that are uh, put online for just anyone who wants to log on and use them.
1: I will second that. I, I've looked at those. More the, the uh, Hebrew than the Greek. Yeah. Or, excuse a- me, more the Greek than the Hebrew.
2: Yeah, those are really so, great. I, I confer with the uh, online class and understanding that. I took my uh, he, my first semester Hebrew online at Southern and uh, just because I was working full-time as well while I was out there. And uh, <laughs> taking first semester Hebrew online was not the world's easiest practice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember sitting down and working on some of that with you, and I was thinking, man, I would not have tried this online. <laughs> But, uh, you know, he, he just, Kevin just mentioned that uh, the enrollment, the demand has not been high, but we're hoping to change that with this podcast. We, we, we expect to see them flooding in after this.
3: Yeah, a lot of demand for, I do, every, every time I have a a, a, um, a major, we have several Bible and theology majors online, and I I tell them if they ask about Greek and Hebrew, I say, well, you need to, to write to the academic dean and... And and say, hey, I, I'm really wanting to know why y'all don't teach Greek and Hebrew online. So, so all five of those people over my ten years of doing that have have uh, done that. And apparently, five over ten years isn't enough.
1: enough that. To- <laughs> <Keep laughs> so what are some? We're kind of bringing this conversation to a close. What are some guiding principles that parents, as well as children and youth workers? Should consider when they're teaching, they're promoting scripture memory, they're they're giving a Bible to a young person. I mean, let's say maybe they're an, the, uh, just a new believer themselves, and they really, I guess, in a lot of this conversation, we've been assuming someone has a Christian background and they're familiar with some of these different debates. Um, but I mean, they just came to Christ recently. What are some things that uh, that you would tell them to think about as they're they're trying to minister to their own kid or kids in their churches?
3: It's a it's a hard question but I, I would tell them we, we talked about the, the scale of word to word word for word all the way over to uh, just a paraphrase translation and so I would I would look and see whatever where your translation falls on that scale first and then you've got to really just think about the target audience
1: we apologize but due to some technical difficulties we lost part of the response that dr. Burris had at the end in that he explained he's not too strict on picking a translation to give to children, to youth. He suggested looking at a number of different factors, the culture around where people are at, What's available to you. But the big thing that he continued to emphasize as he did throughout our conversation was raising the question, what are you doing to invest in that person? What are you doing? What are you going to read with them? How are you going to come alongside them to uh, teach them and help them to understand God's word? And so we really appreciate his generosity in giving his his time and his expertise. He's someone who's a professional biblical scholar who's teaching in a college academic setting, but he's also teaching fifth and sixth grade in his local church, and he has children who are middle school and younger. And so he's in both worlds. So uh, thanks again to Dr. Burris for joining us, and we hope this was a blessing to you as you seek to teach and to pass on
0: God's Word to others. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Family Ministry Podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends on social media. All new episodes are available to listen to on Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spreaker, and iTunes. We hope you have a great week, and join us again every first and third Thursday.